Coming up on Tech News Weekly, I am Micah Sargent, and we start the show by talking to Nathan Grayson of the newly launched Aftermath site. Uh, Nathan joins us to talk about the game industry and how consolidation and unionization is having an impact on everything. And I'm Jason Howell. I've got on my wrist the Google Pixel Watch 2. I do a full review in today's episode. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, We also talk about Humane's AI Pin. Yes, the company has finally launched its AI Pin. It's only $700 and doesn't have a screen. (laughs) No big deal, but you can cast it onto your hand. That's true. So at least there's that. And then Stephen Shanklin was at, from CNET actually, uh, was at OpenAI's Dev Day conference earlier this week, has all the latest on their big announcement of GPTs and so much more coming up next on Tech News Weekly. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Tech News Weekly, episode 311, recorded Thursday, November 9th, 2023. Humane launches its $699 AI pin. This episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by Discourse, the online home for your community. Discourse makes it easy to have meaningful conversations and collaborate anytime, anywhere. Visit discourse.org slash twit to get one month free on all self-serve plans. And by our friends, IT Pro TV, now ACI Learning. IT skills are outdated in about 18 months. Launch or advance your career today with quality, affordable, entertaining training. Individuals actually use code TWIT30 for 30% off a standard or premium individual IT Pro membership at go.acilearning.com slash twit. Hello and welcome to Tech News Weekly, the show where every week we talk to and about the people making and breaking the tech news. I am one of your hosts, Micah Sargent. And I'm the other guy. Sorry, I'm waving like this <laughs> just to kind of like give you a little hint. Uh, I'm Jason Howell and I've got something about this uh, little Pixel Watch 2 coming up here in a little bit. Uh, that was meant to be organic, but it ended up being really awkward. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will get to that a little bit later in the show, uh, but we're kicking things off talking about the video game industry. It's been an interesting year in the video game industry. Joining us today to talk about kind of where things stand and how things are going is Nathan Grayson of the recently launched Aftermath. Uh, Very excited to have you here with us. Welcome. Hi, how's it going? It's going well. So let's let's dig right into this. So, uh, you know, in the in the piece, you begin by kind of discussing the merger between Microsoft and Activision Blizzard. That's kind of been a big headline this year and an ongoing headline. Um, how did this kind of th- this merger unexpectedly lead to optimism among developers, uh, including those at Blizzard Albany and Xenomax, that a merger could actually mean good things. It seems to be kind of, it's often the other way around. Right. Yeah. So in this particular case, um, there are already a couple sort of unionized game development studios under what is now Microsoft. Um, A little while ago, both Blizzard Albany and uh, Xenomax, both unionized to a degree. And have been, you know, bargaining ever since. And so then what happened is as part of the merger, Microsoft agreed to what they call a neutrality deal around unionization. And so the idea there is that basically uh, where other companies might, you know, uh, 
be expressive in the way that they sort of regard unions or, for example, be coercive, um, pull people into meetings and things like that to basically say, like, actually, unions are bad. You shouldn't join them. Um, Microsoft has basically agreed with the CWA, which is a larger union, um, that they will not do anything like that. And so this potentially opens the door for <clears throat> somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 employees to, you know, unionize at various stages and in various ways. Yeah. So speaking of that, that, that commitment, um, that kind of stands out, uh, that they, I'm, I'm hoping you can kind of talk a little bit more about that and maybe talk about, is it rare for a company to make a commitment like this in regard to unionization efforts? Um, or is this kind of a common practice that, that takes place, uh, in, but because, you know, we can compare it to other companies out there who maybe have uh, been in the news for certain union busting uh, concepts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the video game industry, it is absolutely the first of its kind. Um, nothing like this has ever happened at a major company. And, you know, unionization in the games industry in general is still a fairly, <clears throat> uh, fairly new thing, um, especially at major studios like Microsoft or like Activision Blizzard, companies like Microsoft, things like that. Um, it only really started to become a major thing in the past handful of years. Um, but yeah, so Microsoft doing this could potentially set a precedent that other companies might follow. And then at that point, the, you know, entire industry could look more like, at least re with regards to unionization, more like Hollywood or something like that, mm -hmm. where many, many people working in it are unionized. And, you know, for example, a strike can basically shut down the whole thing at the moment. That is not the case, but it could become that way. Okay. And could you tell us, um, what, Whenever a, a, a company agrees, or in this case, whenever Microsoft specifically has agreed to neutrality in the context of unionization, what are the specifics of that? What does that actually look like? What are the union busting tactics that they say, look, we're not going to uh, do any of this uh, should that come up? Yeah. So let's see. They sent over a whole list of bullet points, or the CWA did, um, which, you know, are descriptive to a degree, but like don't really get that far into specifics. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's stuff like Microsoft will take a neutral approach when employees covered by the agreement express interest in joining a union. Um, covered employees will easily be able to easily express their right to communicate with other employees and union representatives about union membership in a way that encourages information sharing and avoids business disruptions. Um, employees will have access to innovative technology supported in streamlined processes for choosing whether to join a union. Employees can maintain confidentiality and privacy of that choice if they wish. And then, yeah, if a disagreement arises, the CWA and Microsoft will handle it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, I, I think reading between the lines, you know, again, it's stuff like because a, a lot of companies, you know, once employees express interest in organization, um, you know, they start surveilling some of that those employees um, at various points. And I think Activision Blizzard even did this. Um, they, you know, might withhold raises from certain employees, do all these things that like technically in some cases are illegal mm -hmm. um, and like you can get in trouble for these things. But one of the problems with the way that laws work, especially in America is that the penalties for union busting are not that great. <clears throat> and so you end up with situations where like maybe a company has to post a notice somewhere on their premises that says like, we violated this and we're sorry, essentially. And it's like, yeah, but, and that comes with like a small fine, but in the end, like that doesn't really uh, disincentivize these sorts of actions that much. And so a lot of companies still do them. Mm -hmm. um, meanwhile, like at least in theory, this, this agreement, um, especially, you know, being done with the CWA, which is a union that has a vested interest in maintaining that neutrality um, 
will hopefully lead to better outcomes. You know, again, we'll see. This is still all very early. The agreement has not even technically gone, technically gone into effect. Okay. So, yeah. So, you know, as you said, it's still not gone into effect and we'll see how this goes, but it does seem to be overall a very positive thing. And given that this is kind of the first of its kind in this industry, it, it all looks bright, bright eyed and bushy tailed, so to speak. But there is some talk in your piece about uh, kind of the, the, the darker side that comes with these corporate consolidations. Um, can you talk a little bit about the negative impacts that this could have uh, actually that did have, uh, you know, the impact that it had on the video game industry and how that may have uh, affected companies like Embracer Group and Epic? Yeah. So, I mean, um, you know, for as much as there's a positive outcome or a potential positive outcome to this Microsoft uh, Activision Blizzard buyout, um, this has also been a year where just like it has become extremely apparent the many potential pitfalls of consolidation in the games industry. So um, multiple companies that have acquired many other companies this year have had you know mass layoffs, um, specifically Embracer, which is a holding group that bought up a bunch of different video game companies and properties over the past handful of years. Um, they were not able to secure the funding that they needed to sort of maintain that operation. They had a $2 billion deal fall through. And after that, they have just been for the past few months, like every month heralds a new round of layoffs from their various companies, um, which is, you know, an immense human toll. Um, companies don't just, or studios don't just bounce back from that. And then similarly, um, in September Epic, which is one of the video biggest video game companies out there, they uh, created Fortnite and games like that. Um, they laid off almost 900 employees, which is a massive workforce reduction across many different studios. Um, they also sold off Bandcamp and laid off a lot of people from that. And so again, you know, when these bigger companies absorb smaller companies and studios, you end up in this, this situation where layoffs could follow. Um, the general shape and structure of the company could change. The people who are running the show could change. Um, the, the core identity of, of a lot of these places um, can be lost in all of that. And I, I think especially in the games industry, what we've seen is like that is more often than not a matter of if or a matter of when and not if like it just it simply happens. It's a matter of time. Yeah, And you spoke to uh, some of the game workers on, you know, what potential unionization can have, how it can affect change within the industry. Um, can you tell us kind of a little bit about how workers specifically are feeling about this unionization and the deal between Microsoft and the CWA? Uh, overall positive fear, kind of where where do they stand? Yes. I mean, I, I think the central tension in anything like this is that workers look at consolidation and they're like, yeah, that could be bad for me down the line. That could mean, you know, loss of a job or, you know, being put on a project I don't really care about or any number of other things. But at the same time, you know, workers look at this happening in the games industry and it's like, well, realistically, as one person, what could I even do? Like a single worker cannot stop a company from making these decisions. And so the thought is, well, if workers organize, if they create unions, then at least they can have more of a seat at the table. Um, again, they may not be able to stop mergers and acquisitions, but they can protect themselves. Um, they they can ensure that the union is, you know, arguing in their favor is if people get laid off, making sure that people get good severance um, or, you know, instead of laid off, they just get moved to another part of the company. They maintain employment, hopefully um, all of these things that unions are capable of doing. 
And then, you know, if they build power over time, then they can actually have more input into this decision making. They can, you know, do things like call strikes, which can be extremely impactful, as we've seen this year Mm -hmm. from, you know, the actors and writers in Hollywood, the United Auto Workers, uh, the U.S. or Parcel Service. I mean, you know, this has been a huge year for union victories. So the games industry is obviously a place where there could stand to be more of that. And I think there will be. Yeah, that that kind of was my last question for you is going forward. Do you do you foresee more of of this happening that uh, this kind of is the 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 big <clears throat> goal that now maybe smaller uh, games industry workers are going, OK, if, if, if it can happen there, we can do that, too. Um, and I guess overall. What impact do you think that will have on the game industry as a whole, uh, particularly for anyone who might be concerned about how uh, consolidation, of course, can lead to layoffs, but unionization um, leading to better paying, but in some ways uh, corporations responding to that by trying to raise prices? And what, what do you think the future of the game industry looks like, uh, both from within and without? Yeah, I mean, that's a good and very complicated question. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yes, um, I don't expect you. It's, it's okay if you get it, it wrong in the end. It's yeah. sort of your crystal ball belief as it's All right. So uh, to begin my hour-long PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, okay. So I think that there will definitely be more unionization in the games industry. There's already, <clears throat> there's already been far more this year across major studios than there ever has been, um, both in the U.S. and abroad. Around the same time period that all of this has been happening, uh, CD Projekt Red, which is the company that makes The Witcher and Cyberpunk and games like that, um, also announced a union or rather workers there um, announced that they're unionizing. Um, Let's see. There's a lot happening in the UK right now. There are various companies that I'm not going to. I'm sorry, I'm getting over a cold. Um, I'm not going to name because, you know, they're still in the process, but um, that are basically organizing at the moment. And so I think that we end up with a much more organized industry, but also like a lot of companies are still hostile to it. Mm-hmm. Um, Microsoft is, you know, an exception right now. Meanwhile, like, so when Epic laid off a bunch of people at Bandcamp and also sold that company, um, they laid off the entire bargaining committee. Bandcamp had or was in the process of unionizing, was bargaining with Epic. And then Epic was like, okay, we're selling this company and getting rid of your bargaining committee and many members of your union. Wow. Epic has said, well, we, you know, that wasn't intentional, but it's like, You know, how could that statistically, it's really unlikely that you just so happen to have done that. And uh, similarly, Electronic Arts, uh, they basically laid off a contracted QA studio that had recently unionized. So, like, you know, companies are still using union busting tactics and in some ways are being more brazen about it than they have been in previous years. Hmm. So it's going to be a battle like this is not a thing where it's just going to be a sudden wave of unionization. Um, though, again, with Microsoft setting this precedent, perhaps it will become a little bit easier and certainly easier within Microsoft. And then as for how that might affect, you know, consumer goods, that remains to be seen. Other industries, you've definitely, you know, seen companies blame unions for like price increases and stuff right. like that. Like, oh, you know, if the workers want more then we're going to have to take more from people to pay our executives millions of dollars every year. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I wouldn't put it past executives in the games industry. I mean, you know, they're all using similar playbooks and all these people, like people who are high up at various companies, they talk, they know each other. Video games are very much enmeshed now in the broader 
media and entertainment landscape. So, you know, you will see tactics from one industry transfer over to the other. I think both on the side of the industry itself and companies and also on the side of unions because major unions are getting involved in the games industry. Mm-hmm. Um, SAG-AFTRA is, has authorized a video game voice actor strike should it be necessary. Um, IATSE is like doing uh, education stuff for trying to teach video game workers how to unionize should they want to. So, I mean, like this is all converging right now. And I think in a few years, you're going to see a much more kind of united media landscape. All right. Well, um, I want to thank you so much for taking some time to join us today uh, and and kind of walk us through everything. Of course, folks can head over to aftermath.site to check out your work and the work of your colleagues. Is there anywhere else that our listeners can go to keep up to date with what you uh, are putting out there? Um, yeah. So uh, on Twitter, I am at VAHN16, a username that I chose when I was a teenager and now regret. <laughs> Um, and then also just, you know, to stress the kind of importance of this, uh, yeah. So aftermath launched this week, it is fully reader funded. So, I mean, if you have, you know, a few bucks lying around, please subscribe. That is our livelihood. That is the only way that we will be able to keep doing this. And I think in general, you know, media is in a very, or journalism is in a precarious place right now. Mm -hmm. Um, just today there were mass layoffs at both vice and Jezebel, which was entirely shuttered. Um, this is kind of in my mind, the only way forward for journalism. So Please subscribe if you can. We need it. And uh, yeah, it's much appreciated. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And yes, I'm sure uh, several of our listeners will be headed over there today. Um, All right. That brings us to the end of this interview. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, that was fascinating, Nathan. Thank you. Um, We've got more coming up. In fact, I've got something on my wrist coming up uh it's it's actually going to stay here and it's going to be in a couple of minutes uh, uh, still just as awkward about. as it was before yeah yeah you know i'm just i'm just throwing it out there and i don't know why i keep doing that anyways <laughs> this episode of tech news weekly is brought to you by discourse the online home for your community uh we love discourse we've been using discourse for years at this point for over a decade discourse has made it their mission to make the internet a better place for online communities. Now, Discourse is open source and it's trusted by more than 20,000 online communities, including some of the largest companies in the world. By harnessing the power of discussion, real-time chat, and AI, Discourse actually makes it easy to have meaningful conversations and collaborate with your community anytime, anywhere. So if you're ready to create a community This is one thing I think you really need to take a look at. Visit discourse.org slash twit. Use that slash twit and you'll get one month free on all self-serve plans. Whether you're just starting out or maybe you already have a community and you want to take that to the next level, uh, there's a plan for you just waiting for you to check it out. There's a basic plan for a private invite-only community. There's a standard plan if you want unlimited members and a public presence, and then there's a business plan for active customer support communities. One of the biggest advantages here is creating your own community with Discourse actually uh, allows you to own your own data. So you're always going to have access to all of your conversation history. Discourse will never sell your data to advertisers. That's amazing. Uh, Hard to find that these days. Discourse Gives you everything you need in one place. Make Discourse the online home for your community. Visit discourse.org slash 
twit. You'll get one month free on all self-serve plans. That's discourse.org slash twit. Discourse, D-I-S-C-O-U-R-S-E, discourse.org slash twit. We thank them for their support of Tech News Weekly. Hopefully the review won't be as awkward as my intros. Uh, I've got the Pixel Watch 2 on my wrist, and I have to kind of like preface and say that I've tried wearables many times, Mm -hmm. and I always have this like interesting experience with them when I'm wearing them. I'm like, oh yeah, this is nice. This is nice. And then when I'm done with the review, I might wear them for a couple of more days, and then I fall out of the habit, and then I don't go back to them, which has had me time and time again really ask myself like, what is it about wearables that doesn't like catch me? Yeah. You know, cause you wear your Apple watch every day on a regular basis. And what is the like prime reason why? Well, and I have to say I, it when I, when the Apple watch first came out, the first generation, which we call the series zero, I did not, I would wear it once a week maybe. Yeah. And then the rest of the time I just didn't wear it. Cause I just was not getting use out of it. It wasn't until Apple made some improvements to it that I started using it more often. And they really took it to the, being the the notifier on your wrist. Um, yeah, now it is just, well, most importantly, it's that. It's that I can get notifications on my wrist so that if my phone is somewhere else, that's yeah. fine. I don't have to carry my phone with me as much. Um, but it's also become this, this health device that I do truly use. It's like the quantified self. And I can see, oh, you know, you did do some actions today. It it is a device that lets me control music. I mean, mm-hmm. so it's just, it is this satellite device that I do feel naked not wearing now yeah. because it has become so handy. But in the beginning, when it was more rough, yeah, I didn't see the value of it and I didn't wear it every day. I kind of went through this over the years, went through this thing where it was like the wearable allows me to not have the feel like I need to turn on my phone all the time because I get the notifications on my wrist. That's great. And I had that for a while. And then I was like, wait a minute. Now I'm just looking at my wrist all the time because every single little notification that comes through buzzes my wrist and I feel like oh, I need to look at it. So that's the other thing. I don't, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't necessarily want to look at everything, you know, and, and there are ways to carve that and, right. you know, and tailor that and everything like that. Um, and I, I start with this because I realize in my time with the Pixel Watch 2, I've been wearing it and using it for the last couple of weeks. I've given it a couple of weeks. I've really really kind of found myself in a familiar place where I'm like, okay, I think when this review is done, I'm going to continue wearing it. And I think my curiosity is because I've actually really enjoyed it. My curiosity is, will that last? Because, you know, I'm going to have this watch for a while. How long am I going to continue wearing it? What are the reasons that I'm wearing it? And we can kind of talk a little bit about that, but let's start with the design, which I think is often kind of the differentiator for pixel watches uh, last year's, you know, and this year's look almost identical from the face anyways the the classic look that rounded display has the really kind of curvy top which i love from an aesthetic standpoint i love the look of that it's very pretty um however i've i've also seen like Sherilyn Lowe from Engadget hers I, th- I believe it was her watch got completely chewed up on the display and she by what God, was it her was it the rev- you no know, it was squirrel? the verge reviewer and i can't remember her name off the top of my head i'm so sorry it wasn't Sherilyn. it was someone at the verge and she had no idea she um you know later in the article just basically had to admit like i have no earthly clue how this happened but it did and that's always my fear with the pixel watch is that that glass is rounded it's exposed there's no like lip to protect it from 
um, brushing up against something. Victoria so, song. There we go. Victoria. Apologies that I couldn't remember that off the top of my head. Um, but at the same time, you know, I love the look of it. So I think it's, again, it's just something to be aware of. This could be the point of contact for something that ends up scratching it or worse. And what we know about the Pixel Watch right now is that repairability is really not even an option. Mm-hmm. If you damage your Pixel Watch, you're replacing it. Like Oh, so Google doesn't have a... <laughs> no. Right now they're advising like, yeah, we, we can't really repair this thing. What? You've got to replace it. So that's a really big downside on this, Sorry, especially what? in this day and age I didn't know that of, was... of green, you know, going green and making sure that repairability is a focus. That's not happening on the Pixel Watch 2. But if you can get over that, you know, that's that's a negative right up at the top. Um, the base of it used to be stainless steel. Now it is aluminum. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm covering it. Uh, now it is aluminum. And actually, I'm just going to go ahead and take Hang it off. Hang on. Okay. I've got so many questions. I'll yeah. try to be quiet and let you keep going. But then yeah. I have so many questions. Yeah. Okay. We'll, we can get to those. So aluminum, not stainless steel anymore. I like stainless steel more than aluminum. Uh, I think from a durability standpoint, that might be an issue, especially given our said repairability issues. Um, but they say, you know, that cuts down on the weight. I didn't find the original Pixel Watch to be too heavy. So I'm, you know, that's a little strange. Um, haptics, like when when I've got it on my wrist and I'm moving around the, the little crown there, some really nice, like subtle, but um, strong enough haptics. It doesn't feel cheap. Um, and then... I think the, the one of the big kind of um, improvements with the Pixel Watch 2 is the sensor array. You've got the electrodermal sensor, you know, the, the skin temperature, these four little dots around here. Those are all heart rate sensors. So instead of having just one that's drawing that that um, the uh, heart rate um, while you're wearing it, it's four. And I did find the heart rate um, sensor. Like Obviously, I didn't have something to cr- compare it directly to to know what is the what is the point of authority yeah. as far as that's concerned. But I loved that it was continuous. I yeah. loved, you know, the, the watch face that I have would show me on an ongoing basis in this little um, readout there what my heart rate was. And that was one of the things I really enjoyed was, okay, I'm feeling a little stressed right now. And I could look down yeah. and I could oh, see yeah. like, oh, okay, it's a Clearly little elevated there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like that. I, I, I like that they've improved the sensor um, array, the heart rate sensor, like I said, very addictive. Um, and uh, it did kind of cue me to, at times, kind of slow down. Um, they do have features within here where when it detects an elevated heart rate and it, you know, the electrodermal, which is like your stress um, detection, um, those things would work hand in hand. And it would sometimes pop up a message to basically say, hey, you're a little stressed right now. You okay, you bro? The, yeah, you have the ability in the app to kind of like log your mood as associated with those events. But it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it didn't happen all the time. Like I definitely had moments in the last couple of weeks that were very stressful and it didn't capture those. Okay. And you felt it should have is what you're I saying. I totally okay. felt like it should have. So that was a little interesting. Um, does have sleep tracking, which I am not a fan of wearing a watch overnight in my sleep. I don't know about anybody else, but um, last night and is I, one yeah, example no. here. Let me go ahead and um, bring down the brightness just a little bit so that it isn't blasting you. Um, so last night, oh man, apparently I slept less than I thought I did six hours and 15 minutes. I usually like to shoot for seven. Um, so apparently I laid up in bed at some point. Um, but you know, it breaks down the sleep, sleep, um, stats throughout the night. It says I had got a fair 
night of sleep, as you can see up there, um, which I would say is, I mean, as far as how I feel about my sleep last night, I guess it's pretty accurate. I feel like I got a fair night of sleep, but I'm just not going to wear, a, if I'm not going to wear a watch during the day regularly, I'm really not going to wear it at night. Um, so, <laughs> so maybe the sleep training uh, isn't for me. But as you saw there, that was actually the Fitbit app. And this does tie into um, the Fitbit app. So you get a lot of extra kind of functionality around Fitbit tracking, especially if you have the kind of the Fitbit premium uh, service. Got has a nice little summary, you know, on my exercise days. You know, this was uh, Tuesdays. I, I do Pilates and, you know, it was tracking my heart rate throughout, gave me kind of an average BPM, um, how many calories burned during that time. All these stats that like, I know, I know people really, oh, and actually I really do like this, the zone. So oh yeah, that's depending good. on, you know, where my heart rate is at and how vigorously I'm exercising, it breaks it down into the zone for the heart rate. And obviously with Pilates, it's a very, you know, <laughs> you don't get in a high zone very often with Pilates, but, um, but I did with other exercises. I know that this stuff is really valuable to a lot of people. Is this valuable to you? I not the zone stuff. I don't do bike. So biking is one of the places where zone and, uh, heart rate zones is important. Yeah. Um, and then I think, uh, certain types of, of like speed running or mile running, it's either long distance or sprinting. That's where that becomes important. Mm -hmm. I don't do any of that. So no, um, the heart stuff in general, like the high heart rate or the low heart rate notifications, that stuff. Yes. I've had, um, because I think I've talked before, like when the way that I found out that I was gluten intolerant was because I ended up in the hospital due to some heart stuff and they were about to do node ablation surgery. Um, that's what they thought. They thought they needed to like burn my heart to fix it. And oh, then wow. it ended up being that it was just because I wasn't properly absorbing nutrients because of the gluten intolerance and blah, blah, blah. And then it fixed it. But during that period of time, my Apple watch was this thing that I could look to to say, okay, yeah, I've got that high heart rate thing going again. You know, what's, what's going on? Yeah. yeah, exactly. And get a basis. And I was actually able to give that to my doctor and that was helpful to my doctor right. at the time. So, um, yeah, I, I did the zone stuff. No, not for me, but I guess if I became a soul cycler or an orange theorist, but, uh, but I mean, using your wearable for fitness theorist. in general, oh, is that, yeah. is that oh, something that so you rely on? That's only, um, in the past four, about four months ago, um, mm -hmm. I started working out regularly. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I've really picked it up again with the, the workout stuff. So, uh, before that, Anytime I would go, you know, on a hike or on a long walk, then I would use it, but I didn't really use it. But yeah. yes, in the past four months, I've really gotten back into it. Um, and I've done that in the past too, where I got really into it and then ended up not yeah. sticking with it. Yeah. So it is kind of a, it takes a, come a little bit thing. of management. I yeah, mean, there is exactly. one thing that this does do reasonably well. Like it, 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 at times when it detected that I was like going for a walk or whatever, you know, it took a little while for it to recognize it, but it'd be like, are you on a walk right now? Are you, are you doing like an exercise walk right now? Yeah. I'd be like, oh yeah, I would. I, I am right now. And I'd click okay. And it would start tracking it as an exercise event, but it would I only track too. from that moment. Right. Oh, and I was already like 10 minutes in and it didn't really like, not as part of that summary, it tracked everything. Okay. But as part of like the summary of like, this is your active exercise moment. It only seemed to track from the point that I clicked. Yes, I'm. I'm walking right now. Um, so it does things like that. It's looking out for 
um, when you are exercising. And I think that's one of the hurdles of these wearables for exercises. It's nice that it does these things, but sometimes like, you know, you could, if you show the watch, like going in here to like trigger an exercise event, you know, that I can get, I can get my summary. I can, I can kind of look through there, but, um, you know, kind of, how do you get started? You kind of have to maneuver a little bit. Oh, it's not one of those three. I could probably set those up as a, as a preset, but then you're just talking about this huge list yes. of, of different things. And it's, I mean, it's about as easy as I imagine it could be for right. a wearable on a right. tiny screen, but sometimes that's enough friction to, for people to fall out of the exactly. habit. You know, it's like, I just really, I just want to start working out. You know, Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, on this watch, the orange button on the side, it's called an action button and it's just, oh, you can so you program for whatever. Okay. And I have it that's set nice. up, but that's because the workout that I'm doing, it's functional strength training is the same type of workout every time. So it just automatically starts the workout. Yeah. But yeah, if I was, if I regularly, if I was, you know, sometimes I'm sprinting, sometimes I'm hiking, sometimes I'm doing Pilates, then that button wouldn't even be enough. And I would say that it's very comparable uh, here as it is there in terms of, you know, you pop into the app, you try to find the workout you want to do. Mm-hmm. I will say though, the Apple watch is pretty good at recognizing the types of workouts that you're doing. Um, one time I was playing around with like a rowing machine and, and it was like are you rowing are you rowing yeah <laughs> well it's a certain motion exactly yeah, they've, they've yeah, tested they for all those over time absolutely absolutely um yeah so you know i think in general the health stuff i know is going to be really helpful for some people my wife has actually expressed interest in in getting one of these because she's been meaning to get a wearable and we're both you know we're all on android um and uh i'm like well you know i think as far as the fitness wearables running android like Google has made some really great improvements, I think, software software wise to this. Initially, I would probably recommend one of Samsung's Galaxy watches, mm-hmm. Galaxy Wear watches. Um, I think this is comparable from that feature uh, set perspective. They've really improved with the integration with Fitbit and everything. They've really kind of built out some of the pain points around um, around fitness. Now, which one is this? This is the uh, six. Oh, okay. So John Ashley just brought over the Samsung um, Watch Classic. And yeah, this looks super familiar. (laughs) Very dark. Uh, A little bit larger. I mean, this, you know, this also points out uh, another shortcoming, I would say, of the Pixel Watch is that you only got one size. So if you've got a large wrist and you want a larger watch, this is the size that you got. Too bad. Uh, Samsung gives you more variability as far as that's concerned. Did you mention the band and how it attaches and detaches? I no, 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 okay, no. Cool. I didn't mention we'll it, but it's that. pretty... Um, let's see here. So... Da, 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 da. Oh, yeah, that's right. So there's a little button right there, and I think that it is um, just uh, Google's watch bands. So this is not... This is a proprietary yeah. uh, band thing, and that's important to point out. You know, a lot of... The wearables, I think that's a feature when they can, when you can throw any, oh, I see, yeah, any sort of band yeah, this on there. definitely looks like it could probably, well, I don't know, yeah, um, yeah, yeah okay, a little latch, but the, yeah, the this has the standard kind of two pin option, right? Um, versus, I mean, Apple Watch is not that you have to use their. Okay. Yeah. It, it's, so Google's it's, following in Apple's footsteps yeah, by yeah. saying, "Hey, you know what? We can give you a custom." kind of fit to make it easier to put on and take off because most of the time that's that's a cool way to do it with that watch but most of the time you have to get a little tool and you put it into the springs and you pull them back and you Mm -hmm. do all this stuff um and so this is supposed to be kind of a 
better way to do it. And yeah. the one thing I'm curious if Google will hold to it. Do you know if the first version bands will fit the second yes. version bands? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, the bands are interchangeable yeah. between the two, and that would be a big ding if if they didn't do exactly. that. Exactly. I'm know? glad Apple continues to do that as well. Yeah. Um, I, I know I'm going long, so I kind of have to wrap this up, but I do want to point out that battery life on this is excellent. I mean, as far as smartwatches are concerned, um, like I could wear this for a full 24 hours with sleep tracking, still wake up and have, you know, it's what am I going to have? Like probably 15%. So, yeah. you know, I'm going to have the charge it, on it and then you hop in the shower but that's exactly yeah. what i did last night and the, the you know the other nights that i did sleep tracking i woke up in the morning and uh wore it for a little bit and threw my morning and then yeah i was as i was doing the shower and a little bit of my morning routine i threw it on the charger and it was on there for like an hour because i got lost in that world and it was charged again so you know if you do want to wear it you know all day and all night um, you can. And that was a big ding on last year's model. So, I mean, overall, I think that there are some trade-offs. I think the the repairability gives me concern. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, the aluminum uh, design versus the stainless steel combined with that, you know, I think that's an, that's an issue. Um, and I didn't even mention the price. The price is, uh, what is it? $350. Um, yeah. But, but at the same time, like, yes, the repairability is an issue. But I think that Google's doing on the right track with uh, the software. And I think that's that's a really big thing because last year the software was was pretty um, subpar. And I think they've they've addressed a lot of that with Wear OS 4 on this device with the integration with Fitbit. I know there are a lot of people that know and understand and use Fitbit um, their ecosystem a lot more better and more than I do. But um, so I'm so I'm curious to continue uh, wearing it. And seeing how I'm it goes over time. To hear how it goes for you. And if you'll end up going, oh, I get it now. I want this. I want to. <laughs> or I did the same dang thing yeah. I always do. I wore it for a handful of more times. Yeah, we'll and have then to I, see. Then I gave up. How it turns out for you. Yeah, but that's the Pixel Watch 2 by Google. So that is Jason Howell's story of the week. Coming up will be my story of the week, uh, a quick one. Uh, before we get there, though, I do want to take a quick break to tell you about our next sponsor. This episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by Wix. Web agencies out there listening, you are going to like this one. Let me tell you about Wix Studio, the platform that gives agencies total creative freedom to deliver complex client sites while still smashing those deadlines. How? Well, first, let's talk about the advanced design capabilities. With Wix Studio, you can build unique layouts with a revolutionary grid experience and watch as elements scale proportionally by default. No-code animations add sparks of delight, while custom CSS gives total design control. But it doesn't stop there. You can bring ambitious client projects to life in any industry with a fully integrated suite of business solutions from e-com to events, bookings, and more, and extend the capabilities even further further with hundreds of APIs and integrations. You know what else? The workflows just make sense. There are the built-in AI tools, the centralized workspace, the on-canvas collaborating, the reuse of assets across sites, and the seamless client handover. And that's not all. You can find out more at wix.com studio. All righty, we are back from the break, and it is time for my story of the week. Um, so 
Earlier this week, The Verge published a piece uh, from David Pierce, actually just yesterday, that was kind of a leak of Humane's AI pin. Uh, The company has since uh, announced the AI pin, so we'll kind of talk about it now that it's out. Um, You may have heard about Humane's AI pin without realizing that that's what it was. You may have seen video of a person holding their hand out with a green laser projecting some text onto their hand, Mm -hmm. the palm of their hand. This was the humane AI pin. It's this little device that you pin to your shirt and it has a built-in camera, a built-in projector, a little touchpad and a microphone and a speaker. And what this device does is it's it's trying to be a smartphone without a smartphone screen. Okay. Uh, It comes in at $699 And it has a square device that is kind of the main part and then a battery pack that you can magnetically attach uh, to whatever you want to attach it to. And then after you pay the $700 for the device itself, you pay $24 a month for the Humane subscription. What this gives you is access to a phone number and data coverage through T-Mobile's network. Excuse me. Um, It's supposed to start shipping in early 2024, so in the coming year, and you can pre-order it starting November 16th. So let's talk about it itself. What is it supposed to do? Um, You can think of this as an interface uh, to access OpenAI slash Microsoft's AI tools. If you think about right now, I can take out my smartphone and I can open the uh, chat GPT app. And then from there I can type things in or I can have a conversation with the, with the chat bot. But what OpenAI aims to do is kind of get rid of all of that interface cruft and all of that interaction and just let you talk to your AI. They are plugging into several different uh, AI tools and they are giving you access to GPT-4 as it stands uh, through its operating system called Cosmos. Now, Cosmos is uh, on top of being able to give you access to AI so that you can use it kind of like a search engine. Um, It has a speaker, as I mentioned, built in, but it also has uh, Bluetooth connectivity. So you could have a little earphone in your ear that's kind of talking to you. It has some features like a catch me up feature that will kind of give you a summary of your email inbox. Um, If you hold up food to the camera, it'll give you nutritional information. If you hold up a menu or something that is uh, written in a different language, it will give you real-time translation. Um, It's also supposed to be able to do real-time translation between you and another person. And then it also does voice-based messaging. So you can send text messages to other people and take calls on the device. What is unclear is if there's anything more to it than that. The Hmm. big thing is a way to get in touch with the chatbot, right? It's a way to access these AI tools without needing a bunch of stuff in the way. And that $24 a month subscription covers your access to those tools. And as those tools improve, as we see OpenAI and Microsoft improve upon those tools, then you can imagine that something like this that is an interface to access that without anything else in the way could become more valuable. There are also the privacy concerns. Um, people, you know, wonder about the little camera that's on it. It is not a device that's constantly recording 
you have to activate it by uh, interacting with it in some way. Uh, so there were early beliefs that the that it was going to be one of these that constantly recorded stuff and then transcribed your day. It's not like that at all. Um, and so, yes, you have to interact with it to get it to activate. And then it also will have this privacy light that flashes if it's ever recording things um, so that people can feel more comfortable around it. But yeah, again, the main thing is just the idea that you can talk to the chatbot, whatever service it happens to be, and get feedback back. So I guess if you're out and about and suddenly you have a thought in your head of, um, I don't know, uh, why is it that uh, that pe- pelicans have such deep lower beaks <laughs> is what came to mind. Man, that, that comes up for me all the time. Right, you know, I'm really what I was, not alone. <laughs> I was trying to think of the pink bird and it's not coming to me that eats, yeah, flamingo. What I was going to go with was why is it that flamingos are pink, which some of us know is because they eat the shrimp that has the pigment that then gets into their feathers and that's what makes it pink. But if you didn't know that, then the AI could tell you that. But I couldn't think of the word flamingo, so I had to go to whatever it was. Anyway, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm curious. Six ninety nine seems like a pretty expensive price. It's a pricey, it's a pricey for thing, something yeah. that is kind of just all a, a piece of plastic with a camera on it. But at the same time, that is kind of what many of our devices are, right? Yeah. Um, I, I I don't know if I find this compelling yet, uh, but it will be interesting to see the reviews when it's out. I, I am curious to hear how people end up using this, what people think. Um, there is perhaps something compelling about having no no blocks between me and whatever AI system they're using. And my problem with it is always the same, which is that we know that these systems can tell you inaccurate things that they can they don't lie because it's not no that it's not capable of lying it is only it is capable of providing an answer that is false providing incorrect information yeah um and so confidently yeah confidently exactly (laughs) and so if that's the case i don't i would never really trust it Mm -hmm. you know what i mean i would have to always verify later so then why not just do that search myself Yeah. yeah um so that's kind of my big issue with it if it's if what it ends up doing is being this thing where i can go uh schedule a a meeting later this week um with sandy and it knows who sandy is and it looks at my it knows that it needs to then look at my calendar and see what times are available and then it also knows that even though i didn't put it in my calendar on thursdays i always end up getting a knock on my door from my neighbor who wants to have an hour-long conversation and so then it knows oh i've got to schedule it later in the day and you know what i mean if if it can do all of that stuff that's where it's it's compelling but and do we even trust it to do all that stuff right, well? Right. You know, like yeah. like depending on our job, setting that that um, that item in my calendar for that meeting on Thursday mm-hmm. could be incredibly important. Yes. Do, and if it doesn't so do, do it, do I feel the need then to go back and verify that right. I actually did it? So then, is what it saving it, you any time? What no. it reminds me of in some way is, was it the. Uh, I think Amazon had something where uh, you could use your voice to order items in the early days of the uh google assistant or the you know the alexa and maybe you st- maybe it still does this because i never had it, the echo but um where you could use your voice to order an item mm-hmm. and it didn't 
actually send the order through. You still had to kind of verify and go back. And it's like, okay, I understand why that is because I don't want to pay for something that I didn't actually intend to buy. But the real benefit, the real utility would be, hey, buy that that package of, of toilet paper and it knows exactly what it is and it places the order and that's like all the cognitive load I need yeah, to put into it. Exactly. Um, and I wonder if that's similar with this too. It's great that it does all these things, but how much do I trust it to do these things? Do I end up spending my time afterwards going back and, and verifying. Yeah. It, which is smart. <laughs> it, it just, it's what's frustrating to me about a lot of these latest products outside of the main companies. It's the, it's the products that are like the companies that are smaller, that aren't well known. They just feel like they're beta testing with their consumer, with their customers. Mm-hmm. You are paying $700, but you don't really know what all it's capable of doing. And there are a lot of like promises about what it might really be able to do. don't even know how long this thing's going to last. Yeah, how long the, the servers <laughs> are going to be up. And totally. yeah, it's just, and that's too much money to, to pay for something that could just yeah. tomorrow. So. I, don't, I don't have any doubt that at some point these things are going to be a lot more yeah. mainstream and that this is, this is kind of where things, you know, what, what is the evolution of the smartphone? I, I could absolutely see something like this being the evolution of the smartphone. The unfortunate thing is we have to go through these painful periods, yes. these painful, expensive, we are the beta tester periods in order to get to that point. And, the, and even then, there's no guarantee that we will get to that point. Right. You know, it's the same kind of bet that's being made around the metaverse, which we hear a lot oh, well. less about. Yeah. These days. But there was a time Meta-hoo. not very long ago before the AI boom happened a year ago where people were talking about that. Like, yeah, it's painful now, but this is the future. This is where it's headed. And it might still head there, but there's no guarantee. There's no assurances. It's expensive to, to get to that point. And yeah. it, it comes with pain. Indeed. <laughs> Potentially. But I'm super curious about this. I'm very interested. Did Leo say that he was uh, going to buy I, one of these? I, uh, he, yeah, he I may have, he but he to. was also going to get the meta glasses the, too. So the I, Ray-Bans. Yeah, the Ray-Bans. So mm-hmm. I don't know if he will. Yeah. We'll find out. <laughs> I Maybe pair them together. Him. Yeah. <laughs> Take all the things. And if he wants, you know, he can have the Google Glass for my office and wear that too. <laughs> all all of once? them working in, in uh, tandem Does that thing with still each turn other. on? <laughs> it still turns on. But I, yeah, I don't think that it actually works. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it, there's, there's stuff out in the cloud that it, that doesn't exist right. there anymore. It can't communicate with. Yeah. I, th- I, th- I believe I, I can't. I can honestly tell you, like, I haven't powered that thing on it. Oh, my goodness. We should do years. it after the show. I'm so <laughs> curious. Take a look and see. But um, but nonetheless, very interesting. And actually, coming up, we're going to be talking with Stephen Shanklin uh, about chat, uh, OpenAI's uh, GPT's announcement at their dev day. That makes me think, like, will those, you know, if this is powered by GPT-4, mm-hmm. um, will those, those kind of, like, unique created um created by individuals for specific use cases will those gpts make their way into an object like this i really think so to expand the capability of it um yeah could be interesting so very very neat all right 
Uh, well, speaking of Stephen Shanklin, he's coming up next uh, from CNET to tell us about his time at the OpenAI Dev Day Conference. That's in a moment. But first, this episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by our friends, IT Pro TV, now ACI Learning. Our listeners, that's you, know the name IT Pro TV is one of our trusted uh, sponsors for the last decade. As part of ACI Learning, IT Pro TV, now IT Pro has uh, elevated their highly entertaining, their bingeable short format content with over 7,200 hours to choose from new episodes added daily. ACI Learning's personal account managers, they're going to be with you every step of the way. They fortify your expertise with access to self-paced IT training videos, interactive practice labs, and certification practice tests. Uh, One user actually shared, quote, excellent resource, not just for theory, but labs incorporated within the subscription is fantastic. Highly recommend the resource and top class instructors. Yeah, I think those labs, that's a really big part of this. Yes, the content's great and you're going to enjoy watching it, but those labs get you involved. Don't miss ACI Learning's Uh, practice labs when you check it out where you can test and experiment before deploying new apps or updates and you can do that without compromising your live system Uh, msps of course love that retake practice it certification tests so you're confident when you actually sit down for the real exam the real thing aci learning brings you it practice exam questions from microsoft comptia ec council pmi and many more You can access every vendor and skill you need to advance your IT career in one place. ACI Learning is the only official video training for CompTIA. Um, Or check out their Microsoft IT training. They've got Cisco training, Linux training, Apple training, security, cloud, many more for you to to pick through and go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, that's, that's even better. Learn IT, pass your certs, and get your dream job or if you're ready to bring your group along head over to our special link you can fill out the form for your team twit listeners actually receive at least 20 percent off an it pro enterprise solution that can reach up to 65 percent for volume discounts depending on the number of seats that you need learn more about aci learning's premium training options across audit it and cybersecurity readiness at go.acilearning.com slash twit for individuals Use code TWIT30 for 30% off a standard or premium individual IT Pro membership. That's go.acilearning.com slash TWIT. And we thank them for their continued support of the TWIT Network and Tech News Weekly. All right. OpenAI uh, finishing up their their very first developer conference in San Francisco. You know, they're 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 right there along with Google and Apple and all the, you know, Meta. They can now consider themselves part of that table, you know, where they have these huge developer conferences to gauge interest, developer interest, to really encourage development of their new tools. And this actually caught a lot of attention. CEO Sam Altman began the event uh, on Monday with a keynote that really showcased some um, exciting advancements for the company um, really just kind of showed to me how much has happened in a single year since chat GPT burst onto the scene and really became a household name. Uh, Stephen Shanklin attended, attended the event for CNET and is here now to talk about it. Welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me back on the show. Yeah. So you're um, you're, you're in the city. So have you spent all week at this event kind of day after day checking out everything that's going on? No, they uh, restricted it just to the uh, opening salvo, really, of the event, and it was just a day-long uh, event. So this wasn't uh, 
this wasn't anything like the scale of Apple's WWDC okay. or Google I.O. or Meta's F9. It, not, it doesn't have, you know, cast of thousands kind of a situation. But there were a lot of people there, a lot of pretty enthusiastic developers, you know, several hundred people there. And, you know, obviously this is going to get bigger as more and more developers decide to incorporate AI into whatever they're building. And it's likely that OpenAI will be the you know backend provider of whatever AI brains they need for those services because it's really hard to build this on your own. It's much easier to just partner with somebody like OpenAI and use their brains. Indeed, and you know we saw a little bit of that with Satya Nadella from Microsoft taking the stage to get a little bit of that uh, that Microsoft love uh, <laughs> on stage and get a get a couple of headlines that way. Um, what was the before we kind of get into the features and everything um, that they that they announced and GPTs and all that stuff? What what would you say about the temperature of the event? You've been to a lot of events like this. This is you know OpenAI's first outing for a developer. Uh, conference to get you know developers excited, and I think I think developers just are excited because this is you know AI and especially OpenAI is ripe for opportunity potentially. But what what was your take on that? Yeah, it was it was a it was a good vibe. I would say uh, there are you know it's, it's it's early days in the AI universe. There are a lot of developers out there who want to make something of it. They might be just you know. Freelancers doing their own thing that may be working for some big tech company. They could be working for some Fortune 500 company. There were a lot of different people from a lot of different areas, and it, it was it was a good vibe. I don't think anybody was, uh, you know, a true believer like uh, you see at, at Apple events or something. There's a lot more of this um, attitude that OpenAI has a lot to prove still. Mm. But I think people were going into it pretty optimistically, looking at this as you know potentially a very interesting development and an interesting platform to build their uh, tools on top of. So I think the, the vibe was good, uh, but it's still untested yeah yeah totally still have a lot to prove um and you led um you, you wrote about this event of course and you kind of referred to this as open ai seeking its its iphone moment which i think is very like i think that says a lot because you know in the in the realm of smartphones and where we are right now and how ubiquitous uh smartphone technology is these days the iPhone announcement many years ago I mean, that was a huge sea sea wave that was a huge sea change that's the word i'm looking for um of attitude of what computing is versus where it's going and i don't know are we in your opinion before we get to these these features which i promise we will get to um are we looking at something comparable based on kind of the, what the last year has shown us and based on just the 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 massive amount of um of i guess development that open ai has seen in the last year yeah that's hard to predict i think that yeah. it could be uh really big i've seen a lot of new trends come you're uh, kind of dissing the metaverse a few minutes ago and <laughs> i've seen some new things arrive that i was kind of skeptical about or i thought would be you know, useful but maybe not revolutionary like uh uh, Apple Watch or something like that. Oh, yeah. Nice to have, but not need to have. I think OpenAI is going to be bigger than Apple Watch, but not as big as phones. So we'll see, or AI in general, I should say. OpenAI is just one of many companies working on it. It's mm -hmm. arguably the leading one. I think they have a lot of developer interest and they're ahead of the curve in that way compared to a lot of their rivals. But I don't think we can predict yet whether this is just is going to be you know massive new platform for everything you do or kind of a point Thing where it's useful in this pocket of your life and this pocket of your life. It's still not clear to me yet whether 
uh, whether it's going to be as pervasive as something like a phone, but it's clear to me that it's going to be, you know, pretty important technologically. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about some of the stuff here. And uh, I think the most buzzworthy was GPTs. Not entirely convinced on the name, to be honest. I feel I find it's kind of confusing because we already have kind of an idea of, of GPT and the GPTs, and like it's hard to know that you're actually talking about something different or in the family you know it's like are you just uh, talking about many chat gpts which i guess at the end of the day you kind of are so i find it a little confusing but tell us a little bit about what gpts are what do they enable that we didn't have before in the past year sure so first of all i i, I agree with your concerns about the name gpts <laughs> it was uh, it's to, i don't know if they're trying to stamp their brand on yeah. this new exciting idea or if they just didn't want to just call them apps which right. is what i what I probably would have done, in fact, what I did in my coverage of it, I, I think of them as apps. I think it's much easier to consider them as apps and what they, the way they package them and launch them. They feel very app-like. So what you have right now when you go to chat GPT is you have this does everything service, right? It's, it's incredibly versatile, incredibly broad. What GPTs are, are uh, smaller packaged versions of something you can do with GPT. So if you want it to, you can, you can go to their website and you can build a sort of a mini version of some tool that's based on GPT. So it's based on the broad thing, but it does something specific. And they gave a couple of examples, uh, you know, so for example, Sam Altman, the CEO gave this example of a little tool that would give startups advice. And it was based on his own videos that he has given about, you know, here is advice to startups. So one of the really interesting things about these GPTs is that you can, you know, give it some basic instructions and then you can load in some of your own specific data that will shape its answers or its direction or its utility. And then it will then provide some kind of output or take some kind of action, like it will produce images, it will search the web, or it will give some textual information. So it packages up this very broad GPT service into something that is focused on a specific task. That could be something you create for yourself. It could be something you create for your company. It could be something you publish for anybody and everybody to use. Interesting. Now, did you get a chance, like, like as far as the layout of the conference itself and especially for press, did, did you have an opportunity to play around with some of these while you were there, get, get an account and get to mess around with it? How, how easy are these things to use? And I guess also to program, because I know that's done with your voice. That's pretty awesome. It is not uh, hard to program in these. There is no coding involved. Let's let's yeah. put it that way. So so uh, OpenAI provides a little walkthrough. You go to their build system for this tool. You create one, and it asks you some questions. It kind of prompts you to go through the system, prompts you for what you want it to do. It suggests a name for the tool. It asks you to upload some files, and it sort of builds it as as you as you add this information, and, and then you can use it and test it. And then as with chat GPT, you can refine it. You can say, well, now do it this way or now do it that way or restrict it to this or something to that effect. So you can, you can noodle around with it and fine tune it. And none of that is actual programming. You're not typing code anywhere. So it's just like any other large language model experience where you are going to be just giving it plain English instructions. Yeah. Okay. One one of the things that kind of popped up for me when I was um, uh, uh, Jeff Jarvis and I were doing live coverage for Twit when the announcement was happening is I wondered 
about the depth of information that you can get out of this. Because sometimes when I use some of these large language models, the information I get, like, okay, you know, there's there's the accuracy aspect of it, of course. You know, am, can I trust what I'm reading here? And sometimes it can be very cohesive. And sometimes it feels like it's providing a surface level answer, like... Like I like I feel like I could have, you know, researched and come up with something with a little bit more concrete depth to it um, and not quite a surface level. And I'm wondering with these, if that is a potential downside to to their development. I mean, obviously, it's probably too early to actually know that. But um, because because really, it's it's just acting on the, the corpus of data that ChatGPT already does. And then anything that you add to it is that basically how that how that works and i guess that depending on the amount of information you give it that it will determine the depth of the 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 output that you get from it yeah so here's here's an example so first of all i agree with your concerns in general with large language models and these these very sophisticated chatbots in some ways they're just amazingly powerful and they just blow my mind and then other times i just they seem kind of primitive and, and, you know, lame compared to an actual human or an actual expert who knows about a particular field. I always look at it as these, these, uh, these uh, generative AI systems produce stuff that's plausible, but not necessarily true. That's a, you know, a a difficult Mm -hmm. situation if you're trying to use it for producing factual information. Uh, Now, when you're talking about these apps, these chat, these little, you know, mini GPTs, you have that same problem, but as you point out, you're adding your own data into the mix. So it's not clear to me yet exactly what that balance is, how much of you know your how much it will take your own personal data into account. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one example I could think of is you know perhaps you work for a company, you have to produce a lot of I don't know blog posts or internal presentations or a shareholder report or something. You want lots of graphics that adhere to a particular style. Well, you could upload a number of graphics in that particular style, and then you could get it to generate new things, a sailboat, a telephone pole, whatever that follows that style, and it would output graphics that look that, that, you know, sort of match that style. There, you know, things like that where, you know, be difficult to do without adding your own, uh, you know, data into the mix. Mm-hmm. So how well it works uh, overall for every possible task under the sun very much remains to be seen. But I do think that a lot of people will be interested in kind of restricting the scope of chat GPT to, you know, to something bounded, to something specific, because, you know, sometimes we want to do the same thing over and over again. So this could be a situation where it would be, you know, useful to to use it as sort of a, a tool that does the same thing you need to get it to do that all all the time, you know, produce a script for, uh, you know, customer service people or something. There are right. a lot of situations where you might be able to, you, may, you might want to do the same thing over and over again, but with some variations or customizations. Yeah. And then, of course, we're going to see a lot of these with the the store that they announced, the GPT store, which is, you know, like like you keep pointing out, like the app store, essentially, um, which has its own challenges. Right. Apple and Google have dealt a lot with, you know, moderation, keeping things safe. And especially when we talk about uh, AI systems, you know, safety and accuracy and all these things uh, come into play. Um, Did they talk at all about how, you know, how they plan on on keeping the the app store kind of kind of clean essentially <laughs> to keep it uh, some, uh something that that people can feel like they can upload their creations but uh people that want to download them know that they're downloading something that they can actually trust so i i will say that they clearly have thought about this but it seemed very preliminary when we yeah. were 
uh, uh, some reporters. Uh, we were pressing Sam Altman and uh, some other folks about, you know, some of these details after the presentation. And, you know, it was clear they'd thought about it, but they didn't have exact concrete answers on some of these details like pricing, how people will get paid for these apps, some vague revenue share, maybe some subscription options later. It seems still very preliminary. And obviously with app stores, if you only have 20 or 30 apps, it's not a huge problem. But when you have a thousand apps or 10,000 apps or 10 million apps, it gets to be a huge problem trying to figure out which ones do you present to people? Which ones are, do you just always present the most popular ones? How do you screen abusive apps? How do you decide what even constitutes abuse? It's always a big gray area there. So if this thing gets big and successful, they will face all the problems that uh, all the big app stores always face in, in terms of, you know, curation and screening. So, you know, I, I think we've seen that movie before. We're going to see it again. OpenAI yeah. is well aware that that's going to be a challenge. And to be fair, they, you know, they're trying to tackle the abuse issue already. They have that, you know, without the first app ever showing up. So they will have some, you know, some experience in dealing with that problem uh, before the app store even launches. Yeah, yeah. And I know we're, we're, we're really just out of time, but I didn't want to end this interview without asking a little bit about GPT-4 Turbo, faster, more capable, cheaper for developers. Um, were, did you, did you sense some excitement from the, the actual, the developer community that was actually there? Like, were they excited about this news? What, what was your take on that? Absolutely. They cheered. They cheered and stomped and clapped and they were very happy about that. The only thing that they were happier about was when they got $500 worth of free usage credits. <laughs> you can always make, make them happy with free money, right? Yes. So, uh, yeah, people were happy about it. To be clear, it is not faster yet. That's the next priority, oh, but it. it is cheaper. So I'm uh, not clear exactly what uh, OpenAI did, but they're getting more, you know, they optimized this, they squeezed more out of existing hardware. So they lowered costs considerably. That will be a big deal for developers who might be cost constrained. They might be, uh, you know, might not be able to scale something as large or do something as sophisticated uh, or, uh, you know, tr you know, try something that exercises the AI system more uh, aggressively. So the price, the price cut is definitely important. Yeah. Some of the uh, other tools are, are very handy. I thought the copyright shield was potentially interesting. Mm -hmm. That's a, a service where if you're an enterprise customer, Basically, OpenAI will pay your legal bills if somebody sues you alleging copyright infringement in some way. And, you know, that's a hot issue in a lot of the uh, in, in a lot of AI generative, generative AI circles. So uh, some new voices that are, you know, plausibly human sounding. There's some yeah, it sounded really there. good. Yeah, they were impressive. And also the training data is less out of date. Let's say that it goes up through April 2023, <laughs> which is, you know, two years more recent than the last batch of training data. So. You're not necessarily going to get breaking news out of chat GPT, but this is, you know, a little bit more current, you know, COVID or something like that, uh, you know, might get a factor into the, yeah, right. into the results. So, so that's, that's helpful uh, for sure. There, so I saw this as a lot of incremental improvements. They didn't call it GPT-5, yep. it's GPT-4 Turbo. So it's, uh, you know, a sizable improvement, but not a complete overhaul there isn't, you know, a whole new assessment of the security risks or the features or possibilities. So this is basically a refinement of what we already have with GPT-4. 
Yeah, excellent. Well, Stephen, thank you for going to the conference and then coming here and uh, <laughs> telling us all about it. And of course, writing for it, uh, writing about it for CNET, CNET.com, Stephen Shankland. Uh, always a pleasure to get the chance to talk with you. Thank you for carving out some time for us today. Appreciate it. Yes, I, always a pleasure. Right on. All right. Take care, Stephen. We'll see you soon. All right, and we have reached the end of this uh, apparently supersized episode of Tech News Weekly, publishing every Thursday at twit.tv slash TNW. The most important thing that you could do for us, well, there are two things. I'll talk about the first most important thing, and that is to download our episodes, and you get that by subscribing, but just make sure that you know, you're downloading and it's it's moving to your phone so you can listen to it at a later time. That really, really helps us out. Twit.tv slash TNW. Yes, and the other thing, that second thing, uh, is by joining Club Twit at twit.tv slash club twit. If you would like to get all of our shows ad-free, including this very show here, uh, then you should consider joining the club. Starting at $7 a month or $84 a year, you will gain access to every single Twit show with no ads. You'll also get access to the members-only Twit Plus bonus feed that has extra content you won't find anywhere else. Behind the scenes, before the show, after the show, special Club Twit events all get published there. And access to the members only discord server that is going to be the place you can go to chat with your fellow club twit members and also those of us here at twit we've got a television screen with you all in chat right in front of us so we can see you and chat with you uh again uh that's seven dollars a month 84 dollars a year um i said starting at seven dollars a month not because it's a tiered subscription but because some folks said we'd like to give you more than seven dollars a month so you have that ability to do so on top of all of that you also also get some special Club Twit exclusive shows. The Untitled Linux Show, Hands on Windows, which is a short format show from Paul Throt that covers Windows tips and tricks. Hands on Mac, which is a short format show from Micah Sargent, that's me, uh, that covers Apple tips and tricks. And Home Theater Geeks from Scott Wilkinson, uh, which is a show with interviews, reviews, uh, questions answered, all about the home theater and AI inside from Jason Howell. That's all about artificial intelligence. Uh, This thing that we all are talking about (laughs) pretty regularly. All of that's available at twit.tv slash club twit. And for those of you who are club members, uh, please hop into the club and check out the thread in the discord that is uh, for the book club. You can vote on the next title for the next book club uh you simply go to club events twit plus channel to check that out i think it's probably pinned somewhere so those of you who are in the club will be able to find it but um yeah vote for the next book and uh you can you know decide what they'll be reading next uh if you'd like to follow me online or check out the work that i'm doing you can find me at chihuahua.coffee that's c-h-i-h-u-a-h-u-a.coffee where i've got links to the places i'm most active online uh check out Ask the Tech Guys uh, this Sunday with Leo Laporte and yours truly, where we take your questions live on air and do our best to answer them. You can also check out later today if you're a club member, Hands on Mac. And of course, on Tuesdays, you can check out iOS Today with Rosemary Orchard and me, uh, where we do all, where we talk about all sorts of, of wonderful Apple gadgetry. Uh, Jason Howell, what about you? Well, you know, uh, the other show that I do for the network is AI Inside, found in Club Twit, twit.tv slash Club Twit. So uh, thank you for the support there. Actually, today we have an interview with Emil Torres, who um, is actually a philosopher and historian um, diving into long-termism and its associations 
oftentimes with uh, artificial intelligence. So that's going to be a really interesting conversation with Emil. Um, but you can find all of the ways to find me online by just going to raygun.fun. Say it out loud because it's fun to say. Raygun.fun. And you will find um, you know all the different social media platforms and different things that I'm involved with all waiting for you right there. Big thanks to John, to John, to Burke somewhere and everyone else in between for helping us do this show. And thanks to you pointing at you at home or wherever you happen to be for listening and for watching this show. We appreciate you. We'll see you next time on Tech News Weekly. Bye, Bye, everybody. Hey there, Scott Wilkinson here. In case you hadn't heard, Home Theater Geeks is back. Each week, I bring you the latest audio video news, tips and tricks to get the most out of your AV system, product reviews, and more. You can enjoy Home Theater Geeks only if you're a member of Club Twip, which costs 7 bucks a month. Or you can subscribe to Home Theater Geeks by itself for only $2.99 a month. I hope you'll join me for a weekly dose of Home Theater Geekitude.